The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Hoare, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, June 26, 2022, on the basis of 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 20. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. Prosecution. Prostitution. Aside from the fact that those two words are very, very similar to each other, both in the way that they are spelled and the way that they sound, what in the world could they possibly have in common with one another? I got to tell you, I spent a lot of time this week wrestling with that very question. You see, this section of God's word that's in front of us today is really divided into two parts. And the first part has to do with prosecution. Evidently, there were Christians who were living in this Greek city called Corinth who thought that it was okay for them to bring lawsuits before public courts of law against their fellow Christians. And then the second part of the word of God that's in front of us today has to do with prostitution. Evidently, there were Christians in this congregation in Corinth who thought that it was okay not just to take God's gift of sex, a gift that he designed to be enjoyed within a marriage between one husband and one wife, not only to take that gift outside of marriage, but also to make it part of a financial transaction. So what in the world could these two topics possibly have to do with one another? Like I said, I wrestled with that quite a bit this week. First of all, to figure out how I could preach a sermon on this text while still keeping it more or less G-rated for the audience that is in the room this morning, but also to figure out what these two things had in common. And what I found out was that these two things didn't have something in common. Instead, these two things, plus a whole bunch of other things, have something very important in common. This Christian church in Corinth was known as Paul's problem church. And this entire letter that we know as 1 Corinthians was about just that. It was about all the different problems that were present there in the church. There were divisions in the church. There was incest within the church, not only being tolerated, but even celebrated. There were people who were obsessed with knowing stuff, even if it came at the expense of loving people. There were people who thought that it was okay for them to hang out at festivals to false gods in pagan temples. Public worship in the congregation in Corinth was absolute and utter chaos with everybody thinking that they had something that they needed to say. And yet because everything that was said was spoken in a tongue, a foreign language, nobody understood any of it. They had celebrations of the Lord's Supper where some people would come up right away to the front and they would eat and drink so much that they actually got drunk and nothing was left to anybody else. All of those problems, as well as prosecution and prostitution, had something very important in common. All of them are the result of the same basic lie. That lie is still very much alive and well in our world. And as was the case back in ancient Corinth, so also today that lie can cause all kinds of problems within a Christian congregation. Some of them, even in our congregation, might look very similar to the problems in Corinth. Some of them probably look a bit different. 
But the good news is that as pernicious and pervasive as this lie is, it is also very obvious. It is easy to spot in our world and it is easy for us to see right through. In fact, over and over again, no less than 10 separate times in the letter called 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the exact same rhetorical question. He says to the Corinthian Christians, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? And it's not because Paul was born in Minnesota. It's because the truth of the matter in question was absolutely obvious. It was plain as day. It was right in front of their faces. And so it's on that basis that the Apostle Paul can say to us, exactly as he said to the Corinthians, stop being deceived by such an obvious lie. So what is that lie? Well, in this first section of these verses, the section that has to do with prosecution, it's no surprise that Paul uses language, he uses terminology that he is borrowing from a courtroom. Evidently, there were Christians who thought that their actions in their day-to-day lives just didn't matter all that much. They believed that they had this invisible, internal, spiritual status as children of God that was theirs, and their outward, external actions just didn't really have much to do with it. And so, yes, they could take their fellow Christians to court. They could also get drunk all the time if they wanted to. They could go to pagan festivals for idols in pagan temples. They could cheat. They could steal. They could be verbally abusive with one another. And at the end of the day, because this invisible spiritual status was theirs, it just didn't matter all that much. It didn't make a difference. In response, Paul says that those actions are the actions of people who are unrighteous. Those are the actions of people who before God's court, before his judgment seat, still have a verdict of guilty and who still are under a sentence of death. Those are the actions of people who have that status and that sentence. And Paul says, that's exactly what described you once upon a time, in the past. In other words, no longer. Paul says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. God changed all of that when God changed your status before him from one of guilty to not guilty. And yet, Paul goes on to say that that change of status from guilty to not guilty was not just this invisible, immaterial, spiritual thing. Yes, it was a change of status that Paul says took place by the power of the Holy Spirit. It took place when God untethered the invisible power of his invisible Holy Spirit in the lives of these Christians. But Paul also says that it happened in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When God untethered that Holy Spirit, he also tethered the Spirit's work to the sound of Jesus' name. A sound that was made by the vocal cords and the lips and the tongues and the teeth of real human beings. And a sound that was heard by the eardrums 
and the hammers and the anvils and the stirrups of other real human beings. And not only that, but Paul says that 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 sound was also made as real human beings took their hands and dipped them into a real physical, visible compound called H2O and poured it on the forehead of another human being. Paul says that is how your status got changed. In baptism, you were washed. And when the name of Jesus was heard in your ears, that's how you were justified. That's how your status went from, not, from guilty to not guilty. You know, when we think about that change of status that we have before God, I think it is very easy for us only to think of something that happened on a cross, on a hill, far, far away, long, long ago. Or maybe we only think of something that happened way up in heaven when our righteous judge decided in his mercy to take our name off of his naughty list and put it onto his nice list. And of course, both of those things are very, very important. But you and I, the people sitting here in the room today, we were not on that hill long, long ago. And you and I are not up in heaven where the judge is sitting. We are right here, right now. And in order for that status, that change of status to be ours, it is not as if we need to somehow internally, mentally, spiritually teleport ourselves back in time or way up into the sky. Instead, God brings that change of status right here, right now to us through the real actions in real everyday life of real human beings, through people making and hearing the sound of Jesus' name. That's how that change of status took place. God has changed our status, not just internally, invisibly, spiritually, but in a bodily way. And so real actions in real everyday life do very much matter, including ours. Which is why Paul says, how in the world could your real-life, everyday actions resemble the actions of people who are still guilty before God when your status has been changed from guilty to not guilty? Which I suppose makes sense, especially when we think about the real, everyday actions that a person might do that could possibly impact another person. I suppose it makes sense that Paul would warn Christians against lying and cheating and stealing and being verbally abusive and even habitually getting drunk. But what about those actions that don't involve another person, at least not in a negative way? What about those actions that only involve people who consent in those actions? What about those actions that are not harmful to other human beings, but maybe all of the parties involved actually enjoy. In the second part of these verses, the part that has to do with prostitution, it's no surprise that Paul uses language, uses terminology that he is borrowing from the marketplace. Evidently, there were Christians in Corinth who thought that they could do with their bodies whatever they wanted as long as it didn't hurt another human being. They assumed that because God created our human bodies to have certain desires, certain 
appetites. They could look at any of the activities that would satisfy those desires and all of them were perfectly fine. Their logic went something like this. It's sort of like how our stomach is created to hunger for food. And there's not just one food, of course, that can satisfy the hunger of our stomach. There's all kinds of food that can satisfy the hunger of our stomach. And sure, it's important for us to eat healthy. But at the end of the day, especially once we're dead, is it really going to matter whether we've spent our entire life eating nothing but fruits and vegetables or if we spent our entire life enjoying ice cream and cotton candy? In the same way the Corinthians thought, once we're all gone, once this is all over, is it really going to matter whether we satisfy the desires of our bodies with behaviors, activities that were good or evil, healthy or unhealthy? At the end of the day, did it really matter? In response, Paul said that when God made a purchase, when God changed ownership for the people that he wanted to save, it wasn't just something that he did for our inner, invisible, immaterial souls. God didn't just send his son to save our souls. He sent his son to save our bodies too. In fact, Paul says it was kind of like the Holy Spirit himself was in the market for a new house, a new place where he wanted to live. And when the Holy Spirit was looking for this dwelling place, surprise, surprise, he didn't simply want 2,000 square feet of invisible air underneath a big open sky. He wanted a house that actually had a roof and a floor and walls. He wanted an actual physical structure, your human body. And when the time came for him to make that purchase, Jesus himself was the one who was going to pay the price. And so Jesus himself had to take on that same physical structure, that same human body, and Jesus offered as the payment for that home one of those physical structures, his own body and blood given into death on the cross. And not only that, but Paul says that even though our physical bodies are slowly but surely deteriorating and falling apart, one day their full and final restoration is going to happen. It is guaranteed. We are going to rise from the dead, glorious and triumphant, just as Jesus himself rose. This change of ownership that has taken place, this purchase that has been made is not just something that happened to us spiritually. This change of ownership has also happened to us bodily. And so our bodies are not our own to just do with them whatever we might want to do. God is just as upset with sins that we might commit against our own bodies as he would be about sins that harm the bodies of other people. So maybe we can sort of summarize this pervasive and pernicious lie as simply as this. It is the lie that matter doesn't matter. It is the lie that sort of elevates all things spiritual and denigrates all things bodily. It is the lie that views our inner, invisible, immaterial self as genuine, trustworthy, reliable, but views our outer, external self as flawed and false. That's the lie. 
that resulted in both of these problems, prosecution and prostitution. That's the lie that led to all the other problems in Corinth as well. That's the lie that leads to just as many problems in our world and in the Christian church as well. Some of them might look very similar. Perhaps it is the lie that our bodies and our hearts can be going in opposite directions, that our outward everyday actions can be completely contrary to the word of God, and yet don't worry, deep down in our hearts, we are still holding on to our faith. Maybe it is the lie that when it comes to our morality, the way that God wants us to live, what really matters is being sophisticated, enlightened, educated people who know all the right things to think and all the right things to say about all the latest controversial issues instead of real, concrete, tangible acts of love and service to real human beings. Maybe it is the lie that the way to judge whether a behavior is right or wrong, good or bad, healthy or unhealthy, is simply whether or not it's something I desire. And as long as that is the case, then I have every right in the world to use my body to satisfy that desire. So yes, maybe a lot of the problems caused by this lie look exactly the same. I'm convinced some of them look quite different. In fact, some of them might be the exact opposite of some of the ones that showed up in Corinth. I think that from the time that Good News Lutheran Church started back in 2013, I have been present for about 98% of the Sunday morning services that have been held. And not one single time has that public worship service erupted in complete chaos because everyone in the room wanted to start speaking in tongues. Maybe for us, the temptation is almost the exact opposite. The temptation to think that on a Sunday morning, the only vocal cords in the room that matter are the ones that belong to the people who have a microphone in front of their face. And that when I come to church, the only body parts that really matter are the eyes and the ears that are necessary to sort of passively receive the sound of Jesus' name that is being produced by others and the mind to sort of internally ponder and contemplate it. Meanwhile, I can leave my vocal cords at home. Again, in the 98% of services at Good News that I've been to, never once have I seen someone rush up to the front of the line in Holy Communion and eat and drink so much that they actually got drunk, leaving nothing for anybody else. Maybe instead the temptation is sort of a calloused indifference to this precious, priceless meal that Jesus offers us. Or even annoyance at the fact that it makes our services a little bit longer. This lie is still very much in the air that we breathe. This lie that matter doesn't matter. But thankfully, once again, this lie is easy to spot and this lie is easy to see through. Don't you know Paul might say to us, don't you know that your spiritual, your, your status before God is not just this invisible spiritual thing? Don't you know that somewhere here on planet earth there is actually a piece of paper or at the very least a record that lists the date and the place and the people who were involved when your status changed, when water was sprinkled on your head and all your sins were washed clean. Don't you know that still here today, God takes that status of not guilty and he delivers it to you 
at a real physical address at a real time on the clock with real human beings using their real human bodies to make the sound of Jesus' name. Don't you know? In the same way Paul would want us to know that our bodies do not belong to us. They are not ours to do whatever we want with. Don't you know, Paul might say, that just as is the case with all other real estate that exists in our world, the ownership of our bodies is a matter of public record There is a deed, there is a title, and the name on the top of that title is not ours. It is Jesus. He paid the price for those bodies right out in the open before the eyes of all mankind. And don't you know, Paul might say to us, that the renovation renovation project on those bodies, the plans for it have already been made, The plans have been submitted and they've been proved. They've been stamped and guaranteed. One day you will rise from the dead. It is a shame that this lie is so pernicious and so pervasive. But there's a flip side to that. There's good news in that. You see, as much as this lie can lead to all kinds of different problems, the second we spot it, the second we see through it, It leads to all kinds of solutions. There are very few things that can make such a difference, such a benefit in your life than to see right through that lie that matter doesn't matter. So stop being deceived. The truth of the matter is that matter matters. And because of the way God has changed our status, because of the way God has changed our ownership, the truth of that matter has already been settled. Amen.